Good morning, Park Church. It's good to see you. Uh, I, couple things on the front end. One, uh, if you are going to be cooking chili this next Sunday, I, I have a special message for you. <clears throat> wow me. All right. I, I have some. I've heard stories of past Parktoberfests, and I so I've I have pretty high expectations. Uh, and I, so I want, you to, I want you to rise to the occasion, all right? So if you're like, oh, should I do this? Should I, should I compete in this chili cook-off competition? Yes, you should. Um, and uh, not least of all, because Dave's looking pretty smug back there, because he was the winner last year, and I think, I need, I think he needs some competition. Um, so I look forward to seeing you all next week. Uh, I find myself in a place of gratitude this morning, I've, uh, my, my in-laws are visiting from Texas. We, we actually just bought a house, my wife and I, uh, about a week and a half ago. Woo! <laughs> Yay! Yeah, we're super excited. Uh, there's a lot of work, and, um, and my in-laws have been gracious and generous enough to fly up and let us shamelessly put them to work. Uh, so, so thank you, Preben and Lisa Lada. Um, and as, as I reflect on this past week, as they've been here and have seen the, the permanent smile on my kids' faces, having grandma and grandpa in town, um, I was reminded of uh, something that happened a few years ago when I lived in Phoenix, Arizona. A good friend of mine gave me a call one afternoon, and, and he shared with me that his, his youngest, uh, a, an infant boy, uh, had to be rushed to the hospital. And so he and his wife were needed to take little Zakiah to the hospital, but, but they needed someone to come and watch their two-year-old daughter, Amaya. And, and so I, I'm always looking for any opportunity to play Uncle Michael, and so I, I rushed over to their house, and I got to hang out with their two-year-old daughter, Amaya, for that afternoon and most of the night. And, uh, and the first hour went great. Uh, we played ball. <laughs> Uh, we ate a snack. Uh, she showed me where her dolls were, and so we played dolls, we read some books, and, and yet, once we hit that hour mark, her, her whole demeanor shifted. And, and I quickly discovered it's because she realized, or at least remembered, oh, mommy and daddy aren't here anymore. <laughs> and she began to get really sad. Uh, especially sad for daddy. She, she wanted her dad. And, and so I, I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm fun, I can, I can distract her. And so I said, hey, let, let's play with these dolls again. So I got some dolls out, and uh, that lasted about seven seconds, and, and she got sad again. And so I said, well, hey, we haven't read all the books. Let's, this is my favorite book. Let's read this one. It, it was the Bible. And so, so I said, let's read this, and, uh, and that lasted about five seconds. But th then I, I said, well, what about food? Food makes everyone feel better, and so how about a snack? And that, that did not satisfy her other. She, she had this deep longing for her dad, and whatever it is I put in front of her, whatever it is I tried to distract her with, did not fulfill that longing. She wanted daddy. I share this story this morning because I think little Amaya in this situation gives us a picture of the human condition. Th this is a picture 
of the human condition. Because there's a sense in which each and every single one of us is like a man. We experience and feel it in different ways at different times, but, but even when we can't quite articulate it, even when we have a hard time finding the words, we all live with an, an almost indescribable, deep longing. This deep longing, something, we long for, for something more, something bigger. We, we long to be a part of of a bigger story than, than just our individual lives, something that will satisfy the unquenchable underlying discontentment with which we all live, even if we're not aware of it at all times. Now, now some, when talking about this, this longing we all have, some will say, well, really what we're after is justice, particularly if you've ever experienced injustice. Right? That thing that we're after, we, we want things to be right. We sense that things are not right, so that's what we're after. Others will say, well, actually, I think what we're after is beauty. Beauty is what we're after. And, and we feel it any time we see a gorgeous sunrise. We feel it any time we hear a song that strikes a chord deep in our hearts or we appreciate a piece of art. Beauty is the thing, really that we're after. Still others will say, well, no, it's, it's some form of spirituality. It's transcendence. It's whatever form that happens to take for you, really what we long for is to be in touch with something other than what we experience here and now. And, and still others will say, well, really that longing that we all have is for relationships. It's for relationships, meaningful relationships, friendships, family relationships. That's the deep longing that we all have. Well, see, according to the biblical story, all of these things that we long for and desire are echoes of a much, much deeper longing. They're all echoes of something much deeper than any of these one things. These things are, in a sense, signposts that point us toward the deepest longing that we all have. Well, this morning, we're, we're beginning a, uh, a new sermon series called In All the Wrong Places. And, and we're going to be exploring the question, what is it that we were created for? What is the deepest longing in every single one of our hearts as human beings? And what happens, like little Emea, when, when we try to satisfy that deepest longing with other things? Th th this is what the series is about that we're beginning this morning. And, and I want to begin this morning with my, in my favorite place, which is Jesus. Because there was a time when Jesus was once asked, a very important question. A guy came up to Jesus and said, okay, so Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Now, in a Jewish context, uh, what, what this question meant was, okay, there are 613 commands in the Torah, that is the first five books of the Old Testament. And, and which one is the most important out of all of those 613? And, and Jesus, without missing a beat, he knew. And so he quoted a passage of scripture, and that, that scripture 
is our text for this morning. And that scripture comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, and we're going to read just two short verses, verses 4 and 5. Chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, verses 4 and 5. So let me read this for you. This, this is God's word for God's world. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. God's word for God's world. Will you pray with me? Father, as we come here this morning, as we gather, undoubtedly from having uh, many different experiences over the course of this past week, undoubtedly being in all sorts of different mindsets, experiencing all sorts of different emotions, we ask that you would quiet our hearts so that we might hear from you. Remind us this morning of why we were created. Remind us of that deepest longing that we have and, and where, where it might find its true fulfillment. Uh, we, we love you too, Father, because you first loved us and we pray in your Son's name and, and by your Spirit. Amen. So Jesus has asked this question. He responds by quoting Deuteronomy. And it's amazing. Jesus knew the scriptures so well, right? He could just, he could just recite. It, this was clearly the story in which he believed he was living. And so he, he, he quotes this passage from Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. But then he actually adds a second one. He says the second is, is like it. The second is similar. And then he quotes a passage from Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what I find interesting about his response, these two commands, is the way that Jesus ranks them. Love God and then love neighbor. Now in Jesus' day, what, what would have caught people in his response was not the way that he ranked these. In fact, he would have probably gotten an applause because this passage, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6, or four and five, and, and the larger passage in which it's found is a part of a larger prayer in Deuteronomy that, that Jews would often pray. In fact, every day. It was called the Shema. And so every day, a good observant Jew would get up and would pray this. It was ingrained in, in the, the collective heart and mind of Jesus' Jewish culture. And so when Jesus said, this is the greatest command, everyone would have agreed. It was that second one that Jesus added that would have rubbed people a little bit the wrong way. And in fact, one of Jesus' hearers, after he said this, even, even said, now Jesus, when you say love your neighbor, like, who are we talking about here? Right? Because clearly, not, I mean, not everyone, right? I mean, there are some people who are enemies, unclean, you know. And that would have been the rub for Jesus' hearers, is that second one. In our culture today, though, I think the reverse is true. 
You see, because we live in, in an increasingly secular humanist society, what, what's at the center of our collective philosophy as a culture is this idea of the value and dignity of the individual person, right? The human being. And so we live in a culture where it's actually rewarded and a good thing to be kind to one another. And I don't know about you, even though that doesn't always happen, I don't know about you, but I'm grateful to live in a, in a society where, uh, where that's generally valued. Even if it's not practiced very well, generally speaking, it's valued. And yet, I find it intriguing that, that for Jesus, he ranks these two commands with love your neighbor as yourself as second. See, I think, I think most of us in our culture would be comfortable if it was the other way around. Listen, the most important thing is that you, you just love your neighbor as yourself. That's it, right? John Lennon got it right. Love is all you need. We just love each other, we'll be fine. But, but Jesus says, well, actually the greatest command is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And then he says, everything else flows from that. And of course, we can't disconnect these two. But for Jesus, the priority was very, very clear. And I find that intriguing. Now, as soon as you say this, the, the question begs itself, like, why is it that God would command that we love him more than anything? Like, isn't, isn't that just a little egotistical, maybe even narcissistic. I, I had a friend in high school who was not a Christian, uh, and one day he, he decided to share with me why he wasn't a Christian. And he said, Michael, you know, like, as a Christian, I mean, you, you believe that, that God, God commands that you need to love him more than anything else, right? It's like, yeah. And, and you believe that, that God demands that you worship him and that you obey him above anything else, right? Yeah? And he said, well, see, that's, that's just it. I can't worship a narcissistic God. And it was one of these moments, one of these moments I look back to, where in the moment, I don't remember what I said, but I fumbled my way through it. And I remember leaving that conversation being so, so discouraged. Um, and yet I am so grateful for it because I haven't forgotten it. And this is why, like, if, if, you, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus uh, and, and you find yourself from time to time with opportunities to talk about your faith with other people and, and sometimes you fumble your way through it, like, don't be discouraged. Don't, be, don't, don't give up because God actually wants you to learn through this process. And I, and I just want to say, like, if, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, or you've got questions, or you're like, I don't know what I think about this whole church thing. First of all, I'm so glad you're here. And secondly, ask your questions. Find, find someone, maybe the person who you came with, or, or anyone. Ask your questions, because this is a community, and we want to be the sort of place where, where questions are welcomed. There are no questions that are not allowed. 
And so this was one of those experiences for me where afterwards I was kicking myself. I'm like, man, this was a missed opportunity. But as I've thought about it over and over again, and I have, I've, I've learned more and more. And, and if, I, if I could go back, I'd probably say, say something like, you know, it, it actually, it's, it's not the case at all to say that, that God is narcissistic for, for commanding us to love him, that for commanding us to obey him. It, to, to do so would be to project our own dysfunctional relationships on, onto God. In fact, the reason why God says, you are to love me more than anything else, is because he actually loves us. And because he created us. In fact, he, he designed us to function in a particular way. He created us as his image bearers to, to know and to love and to serve him above everything else. And as we know him then, to reflect who he is, his character, to the world around. This is what it means to be human. The deepest longing in the human heart is to know and love and to be known and to be loved by God. This is what we were created for. And it's not narcissistic for God to say, hey, you should love me with all of your being. Because he knows that until we do that, the deepest longing in our heart will not be fulfilled. But we will look elsewhere and be perpetually disappointed time and time again. It's kind of like, it's kind of like a, a parent with a child. I mean, is, is, it, is it narcissistic for a parent to want his or her child to obey them? I, maybe sometimes. Uh, but as a parent, when my son Daniel is on his bicycle, because he's learning how to ride with training wheels, and he's going down the driveway, and I see a car coming down the road, and I say, Daniel, stop. Why do I want him to obey me in that moment? Why, why do I want him to recognize my voice and to, to care more about what I am saying in that moment than about how much fun he's having riding that bike? Is it, is it because I'm an egomaniac? No, it's, it's because I love my son. It's because I want to protect him. It's because I see things that he does not see. And so I want him to obey my voice and Sina's voice over every other voice because I know him and I love him and I know what's good for him. This is what it's like with God. When he says, love me with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength, it's because he knows this is what you were created for. And he loves us. And he wants good for us. The, the author of Ecclesiastes, a book in the Old Testament, puts the issue rather poetically when he says this. He says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. In other words, life is full of good and beautiful things given to us by God 
that are intended for our enjoyment. And yet, he's also put a much deeper longing in our heart. A desire for for eternity. A a desire to, to know and love the eternal one. To have life with, in, and through God, our creator. See, according to the biblical story, God created us with a deep longing that can only find satisfaction in him. We were created to love, trust, and obey God above everything else. To let him be the one in whom we find our deepest sense of purpose, meaning, identity, and joy. A pastor who lived a long, long time ago, and theologian, prayed a prayer this way. He said, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We were created to worship God. We were created as worshipers. We were created with this longing that will only ultimately be fulfilled in relationship with our creator. But the problem, though, at least in my heart, the problem is that the the human heart has a tendency to, to look other places to find that fulfillment. To look other places to, to, to get a sense of one's identity. To look other places to fulfill that deep longing in every human heart. And the Bible has a word to describe this, this tendency of the human heart, and that's idolatry. Now, I don't know what comes to mind when you hear the word idol. Maybe Kelly Clarkston or Simon Cowell. <laughs> possibly. But when the, Bible, when the Bible uses the word idol, it means it in one of two senses. Either it's referring to something literal. That is a physical object or statue that, that represents an actual deity or a god. You will find this in, in a temple, right? In the ancient world, when you go to a temple to worship, you enter the temple and there is a either a wooden or stone carving of, of whatever local god that temple is dedicated to. And so you would come to the temple and you would bow down and you might offer a prayer or light incense to this, this idol. And maybe, it is, maybe what you need in that moment is, is good crops for the year. Or maybe what you need in that moment is financial favor. But oftentimes when, when the Bible uses the word idol, it's referring to something, a literal object. But there's another way the Bible uses the word idol, and that's metaphorically. Pastor Tim Keller describes it this way. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. And so, continue through this series, each week we are going to look at an, an idol, a common idol. And, and my hope and prayer as we go through this series is, is that, that God would expose the idols in our own hearts. 
and that, and that as we consider the scriptures together, that we might be open to God nudging us and, and, and informing us as to where we might be looking to fulfill that deepest longing in our hearts instead of to him. And so I want to close this morning very practically with, with four things that will help us understand better what we mean when we talk about idols. And the first is this. Idols are made and live in our heart. Idols are made and live in our heart. In the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, chapter 14, we read this. When any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts, I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel. See, what makes an idol an idol is, is not the thing itself, but the place that it has in your heart. Which is why the great reformer John Calvin referred to the human heart as a factory of idols. And so, for example, next week, we are going to be talking about the idol of approval or affirmation. Because, because if you think about it, the approval of others isn't a bad thing. It's, it's a good thing. I mean, imagine living in a society where no one cared about what anyone else thought. Some of you are like, you're describing my spouse right now. All right? But imagine, though, if we lived in a society where no one cared. I mean, the, uh, the approval and affirmation of others is a good thing. But, but what happens if that good thing becomes an ultimate thing in your life? And, and the approval or affirmation of your boss or your spouse or someone else in your life becomes something that drives you in a way that becomes unhealthy. Now, now, if it's true that in one's heart, idols are made and live, then what that also means is that anything can become an idol. Anything in this world, in God's creation, can become an idol. Your career can be an idol. A person can be an idol. Your own personal comfort can be an idol. What else can be idols? I, wa I want to hear. What else can become an idol? Kids. TV, kids, kids. Sports. sports, food, education. There are so many things that can become idols in our lives. A particular political ideology, money, spirituality, lifestyle, nationalism, social media, go on and on and on. There are all sorts of things that can become idols in our lives. Which leads to the third thing that's important to understand about idols, and it's this. Idols are usually not bad things. They're good things that become ultimate things in our lives. Or you could say they're good things that become God things in our hearts. Take children, for example. Kathleen, you mentioned children. Are children good things or bad things? It, it depends. You know, at three, at three in the morning uh, when Daniel's not sleeping, uh, right, 
in our society, we, we appreciate the inherent goodness and value of children. And yet, and yet what happens when this good thing in your life becomes an ultimate thing? What happens when you, you began to care more about the success of your child as you envision it more than anything else? What will happen is you'll begin to put pressure on your kids to perform, and that pressure will get heavier and heavier and heavier until eventually two things will happen. One, you will crush your child because you will be putting a weight on your child and expecting your child to provide something for you that only God can provide. This is what happens when we make things idols in our lives. But secondly, you will be disappointed. You will be disappointed time and time again, which leads to the third thing we have to understand about idols. And it's this, idols will always disappoint you. American novelist David Foster Wallace said this. He said, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Idols will always disappoint you. And friends, the reason why we gather here every Sunday morning is to redirect our hearts and our minds to the one who will never, ever disappoint you. Back to the story. So there I am with little Amaya. And she's being disappointed time and time again by her dolls, her books, her food. Nothing is satisfying her because she wants her daddy. And then I get a text message that changes everything. Her dad, my good friend, sent me a selfie video of himself talking to his daughter. And so I said, Amaya, come here. And I showed her the phone and I pushed play. And it was my buddy, and he said, hey, sweetheart, I love you and miss you so much. You know what, I'm gonna be home soon, and when I do, we're gonna cuddle. And that was it. And then Amaya grabbed the phone out of my hand and pushed play again, <laughs> and watched it. And again, and again, and again, until her dad came home. Do you see that when we gather here on Sunday mornings, we are like Amaya. We gather here and we push play again and again and again, and we are reminded of the gospel. We come here and we are reminded of the saving story of Jesus, the story of his life, his death, and his resurrection. That when we look at Jesus, we see a God who loves us so much, he was willing to give everything for us so then he can invite us into a life 
true, real life, a life that he originally intended and that he desires for every single one of us. We were created to love God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our strength. Will you pray with me? Father, we, we love you. And we love you because you first loved us. And, and my hope, Father, uh, as we go through this series, uh, is that you would meet us each individually. That as we consider the ways that certain things become idols in our hearts, that you would, you would gently and strongly remind us that you are the only one, the only one who can fulfill those deepest longings in our hearts, that you would teach us to trust you, that you would teach us to, to expose the idols in our hearts so that we can replace them with you, our good, gracious, merciful, loving God. We love you too, Father. And we pray in your son's name and by your spirit. Amen.